Welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is an award-winning platform that helps our clients and community manage their financial crime risk exposure. We aim to democratise due diligence through our AI-powered AML and KYC platform, our expert research and insight into emerging financial crime threats, and our deep dive intelligence for enhanced due diligence. Find out more at wearethemis.com. I'm thrilled to be here today talking with Gavin Miller, a former detective with 30 years experience in law enforcement, the last six of which were spent in the Modern Slavery Human Trafficking Unit for the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Gavin has a real wealth of experience in this area and is now setting up a social enterprise community interest company, highlighting to businesses that modern slavery prevention presents a real opportunity and competitive advantage for them. So I'll start off by asking you, Gavin, if you don't mind, if you can give us a bit more background on your career in modern slavery and human trafficking, just to set the scene for our listeners. So uh, to give you a little bit of my background, uh, I uh, was 30 years in law enforcement. I spent more than half of that as a detective in the police service of Northern Ireland. And I spent the last six years uh, of my career as the either the operational lead or the deputy operational lead in the police service Northern Ireland, the PSNI, their modern slavery human trafficking unit. And it was uh, by far and away the most enjoyable uh, area of uh, police work I was involved in uh, for the effect that you could have, the positive effect you could have on people's lives. Um, when you uh, when you join the police, you you join for the reasons that you hope. Well, you join for the reasons that you want to help the good people and the vulnerable people, and you want to catch the bad guys. And there's nobody more vulnerable than a victim of human trafficking. And there's no one who is more callous to humanity and needs locked up than a trafficker. So uh, the last six years were were really enjoyable. I was the uh, the training lead uh, as well. So delivered the online training for police and police staff. So, and that was completed by uh, over 5,000 people before before I left. But uh, because of the partnership, the, the trafficking uh, uh, was, uh, was, was very rewarding and uh, enjoyable work. I don't know if there's any benefit in talking about what human trafficking is. No, I think I think it's really important to to get the definitions right. Your own yeah. language is precise. So basically, human trafficking is about exploitation. It's mostly about moving somebody from point A to point B because when they're at point B, you want to exploit them. You want to use them and commodify them for money. That could either be uh, sexual exploitation or labour exploitation or it could be uh, it could be uh, forced criminality it's where organized crime gangs uh, make victims commit crime to increase the money flow for the for the crime gang um, two definitions would be you also talk about servitude slavery and servitude and that's really just when somebody has complete control over your entire life, your work life and your your private life. And then the other part would be labour exploitation. What is forced labour? And forced labour is really when 
somebody is forced to commit, forced to complete work, and there's an area of menace with that that has uh, that makes it forced that somebody is not doing that voluntarily. They're doing it uh, against their their own will. Sometimes I get a bit picky because people and the use of language. I get quite picky because I've been involved in this world and people talk about smuggling and talk about trafficking and think it's the same thing. They're really very different things. They could be the same routes that the people use to bring to people over to use them, but it's different things. So if you think about human trafficking, then that is somebody being moved to point A to point B because I need you at point B because that's where I'm going to exploit you. That's where I'm going to use you for money. But when you're talking about, and that, sorry, that doesn't have to cross international borders. So if I am involved as a crime gang, a trafficker involved in sexual exploitation, and I am moving uh, victims from one brothel in Belfast to another brothel in another part of Belfast, that movement is complete. Whereas for smuggling, you need to cross an international border. It's an offence against the state rather than an offence against the person. And smuggling is when there's usually for social, political or economic reasons, somebody wants to get from country A to country B and the smugglers don't care what happens when somebody gets to country B. You see in the TV at night in Dover, all those poor people who are going on the small dinghies and they're crossing over from France to Dover. The smugglers, once they've got the people onto the dinghy and sent them out onto the the channel, they don't care what happens to them, which is different from trafficking because they want to get them to the UK or wherever because that's the area that you're going to start to exploit. Is that? Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, a couple... Uh, uh, a couple of operations. I have to be mindful what I talk about operation, but a couple of operations that I talk and I'm very mindful that it's a podcast by Demas and you work with the financial institutions. So I've tried to tailor some of the cases that I'm going to talk about to try and give a flavour of, of, of uh, your industry. So I wonder if you could also tell us a bit about the specific landscape of modern slavery and human trafficking in Northern Ireland. Are there any um, particular typologies that you tend to see more of? Does the island's geography or political landscape impact on the specific ways this crime manifests? Or does it present any opportunities um, even for how you tackle the crime? The the, P, the PSNI, we, uh, we were in a really, and are in a really good spot. We've got one of the largest human trafficking unit teams in the United Kingdom. And we have the full support of the police authorities in taking cases forward. Part of the part of the ramifications of being in Northern Ireland is with the troubles. So it meant that we have a large number of officers who are skilled in not only overt police work, but covert police work. So it allowed us to take investigations on, allowed us to take proactive investigations on, and we were good. We had, we had, a, we had a pride and still have a pride in what the team would do. The, you look sometimes where you're just potentially displacing a problem, just moving it somewhere else. We felt the Northern Ireland with the, 
the skill base that was there, that we were in a really strong position, that we were the best place to take that operation on and take down that organised crime gang. And Northern Ireland was one of the best places that there was to for victims. This, this care and support that they're given through from the Department of Justice and the National Referral Mechanism down through a large number of fantastic NGOs that work with victims on short-term care, but also the long-term care, that we were in a really good position to take operations forward. We also have an advantage that we're on, we're on the little island. Sometimes you've got, if you're in Glasgow, and you've come across a gang and they maybe moved to Manchester, then that moves from Police Scotland to the Greater Manchester Police or West Midlands, Birmingham to the Met in London. And however work, however well we work together, there's going to that's going to cause issues and it's going to cause gaps. Whereas because in Northern Ireland we are the one policing force, then it gave us a it gave us that added advantages that we could cover them throughout the entire the entirety of Northern Ireland. And is it possible to talk through any examples of cases or operations that you've worked on in real life to just uh, give the audience some insight into those? So the first case I'll talk about is um, human trafficking by labour exploitation domestic servitude case. Uh, this was a couple that were convicted uh, in this summer for uh, holding a girl in uh, domestic servitude for over a year in Belfast. And the spoiler alert at the start of this story is that one of the the convicted criminals, suspects, worked for a retail bank, a well-known retail bank in Northern Ireland and Belfast, but a a UK uh, big, uh, one of the main big banks. So the reason that I talk about it is because I want to try to instill to people that it's not all foreign nationals. It's not all I have to look at way down the different tiers. The importance of looking at ourselves as our business initially is is vital and not thinking that just because oh, it's somebody who works in a bank, a UK citizen, makes a good wage, they can't be involved in this. That That's not the case. So this was a couple, and they uh, took uh, from their family who had a young girl for four years. They took this little girl over, and uh, she had learning uh, disabilities and was a really vulnerable wee girl. And they kept her for over a year, and she was a domestic servant in their house. She was used as just part of the fixtures and fittings of their house. She slept on the floor in a box bedroom with the two children. She wasn't given money. She wasn't given phone. She was completely isolated. And because of her vulnerabilities, they used that as part of their control to uh, exploit this young lady. They they used immigration status, claiming that they were going to sort out our visa as another control. They, They held that like a sword of Damocles over this girl that she felt she was completely trapped and she had nowhere to go. And they stole this girl's life as well as not paying her any money. And they said that they would pay her family money, but that happened very irregularly. And they uh, 
they did this in full knowledge of what they were doing. There was not as if there was a a, a cultural reason why this was okay. Uh, immigration officers went to speak to them one day and they lied that she wasn't there and she had run away. They they knew what they were doing and what they were doing were just using this girl to make their lives easier, to cook and clean, to look after their children and allowed them to return to work or the lady, she returned to work early and then it didn't affect her. It didn't affect her salary, maternity or or anything like, like that at all. So what happened in this case was that there was a big fight one night and for once they, they let her walk and she walked out the house and she just came across a really kind member of the public who saw her in a distressed state and she was uh, told her story and she went to a solicitor and then she came to came to us, came to the police. And it's one of the cases I'm so proud of because usually you'll find a victim will just want to go home, they'll want to be repatriated because where they've been exploited, it doesn't give happy thoughts or memories. As far as court cases go, that can make things really difficult because somebody's kept in that level of isolation that it can be really hard to build up a picture of what's happened to this person unless they engage with you. But through the different departments in Northern Ireland and some of the, the NGO charities and the Department of Justice, the Immigration Service, there's lots of people involved that she made Northern Ireland and still has made Northern Ireland her home. And we're so proud that she's decided to stay. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. But because of that, she felt over time, and it took a year, it took nearly a year to get her statements of of what's happened to her, to build up that level of trust that she could disclose what happened to her. And with the information that they gave us, then uh, we uh, conducted our investigation. And what sort of help or financial intelligence did you get from banks or other financial institutions that helped you with your investigations? Another part of the investigation was the help that financial institutions gave us through kind of court productions and the documents that we received. We could show the lifestyle. We could show that what they did was they would put money into our account and then immediately take it back out again. But then we'd have a Photoshop of her account or they'd put money into her account, but then they would use it to buy things off Amazon or or wherever that were nowhere nowhere were for any use for her. So this young lady, she had she was told she'd been given a bank card for her money and it was a bus pass. But she was at a level of vulnerability. She she didn't know she didn't know any better than that. So that's 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 one case uh, that we had and we're really proud that she's made here made Northern Ireland her home. Uh, we're delighted uh, we got uh, the conviction and because we got the help from the financial institutions we were able to show as I said that lifestyle and it meant that the traffickers the convicted couple they had to pay her £10,000 gosh that's an, that's such an awful story so that so the 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 stuff that the banks gave you that helped with that that was those kind of the access to those statements and things so you could kind of yeah 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 absolutely so and also with that was, you know, we got help from the National Crime Agency. We got help from Nigerian 
banks and Nigerian law enforcement. So that uh, was uh, that was really helpful. Yeah, to that case, and it meant that it didn't go to trial because we could show that we had so much evidence yeah. that it wasn't worth putting that victim through yeah. through. Uh, have cross examination and having and that's, to appear. Yeah, that's so important as well, isn't it? Because it's not—it's not as you say. It's not just about the conviction; it's about that victim's experience, and that's something that financial institutions can directly do to help a victim to lessen. Uh, lessen yeah, that. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So another case I'd talk about is again this summer was the uh, was a conviction of a man called Martin Heaney, and he uh, was convicted of the largest human trafficking. A case for sexual exploitation on the island of Ireland under the new legislation. And it came about because of a suspicious activity report. It came about because the financial institution had recognised his accounts and how much money he was meant to have coming into his account to the actual vast amount of money that was flowing through his accounts and they raised a suspicious activity report. So that then gets sent to the police team and that helps to initiate an investigation. In this case of uh, Martin Heaney, he identified and picked on really young, vulnerable women who were all local, all from Northern Ireland, and he exploited their vulnerability for sexual exploitation. And he did that for his own gain, and he did that for other people's gains. He would drive these girls all around Ireland, the whole island of Ireland, and he would use them uh, to be sexually exploited. And in Northern Ireland, paying for sexual service is a crime. It's only part of the UK where that legislation is in place at the moment, called the Nordic model. So just as a brief interlude here, I'd like to explain to listeners what the Nordic model is in case you're not familiar with it. Um, its full name is the Nordic model approach to prostitution. It's also sometimes referred to as the Swedish model or the end demand model or partial decriminalisation. And under this model, buyers or clients of sex services are criminalised while the sex workers themselves are decriminalised. Um, the activities like third-party advertising, pimping, owning a brothel, etc., are still illegal. But the objective of the model is really to decrease the demand for prostitution and thereby decrease the volume of the industry overall. It was developed also as part of Sweden's Violence Against Women Act, so you can see that the model is sort of aims that sex workers who may be trafficking victims aren't, aren't punished for prostitution. The European Parliament passed a non-binding resolution urging member states to adopt the model um, which criminalises the purchase of prostitution but offers support for trafficking victims to exit the sex trade. And it has been adopted in a few countries around the world, including Ireland and Northern Ireland. But he would uh, travel all over uh, and he would make vast sums of money, which he would then use for, for his own gain. And because uh, the banking officials could see that money trail, the amount that he was paying for fuel, the amount he was paying for adult service website ads and creating these things, then they used that to help uh, educate and inform us. And so once we started to uh, look at this man, we could build up the pillars of our operation, which involves travel, financial is a huge part to play, and then we could start to engage with the victims. And we worked really closely to build up a trusting relationship 
with the victims that they stayed on board with us because some of them had had really bad experiences with law enforcement, were very nervous and very scared. And that's one of the reasons that he identified them and he picked on them. But uh, we we got a result at court and he was convicted of 29 separate offences, 12 separate females, victims he had exploited and 10 of those victims had been for human trafficking for sexual exploitation. So he was uh, convicted and he was given a, a special order called a Slavery and Trafficking Prevention Order, which uh, monitors his behaviour when he's released from prison, which he's breached already. Oh, uh, the activity report, suspicious activity report that the bank submitted, that was that about the adult service websites and the amount? Yeah, yeah that was it. So it was, so it, was uh, it was him. Uh, it was just clearly showing that somebody who was meant to be retired, having a very yeah. pension, had a very large amount of cash flowing through his accounts mm. and it, it was paying for. So that was uh, a really fantastic case for us because without the involvement of the financial institution, we might have picked up on that at some stage, but we picked up earlier than we would have. And not only is it great to get the conviction, but it, it's what it gives the uh, to the victims. Yeah. And then hopefully, hopefully there'll be some financial recompense for them. But it's more than that. It's more a feeling of legitimacy and a feeling of self-worth. And it was wrong what this man had had done to them. And again, I can't uh, comment highly enough on the NGOs and the different partners and the prosecution service who all played a really big part in getting this over the line and getting him prosecuted. Yeah. So that and that's a kind of a good example, I guess, of a of a cross sector partnership. And that is that how a lot of your cases work with with kind of input from all of those. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So part of the involvement will be the the Department of Justice. It'll be the Prosecution Service. If in this case he took victims down to the Republic of Ireland, so our colleagues in the Garda Síochána have a close relationship with them. So everybody comes together and helps each other. So sometimes success looks differently yeah so it's not always it's not always simply because i have got that conviction that that's successful and if i don't have a conviction i don't have success so there's a couple there's a couple of cases i would raise so not long before i retired i got a phone call and woken up at five o'clock in the morning because a large number of potential victims had walked into a rural police station in Northern Ireland claiming that they were victims of labour exploitation. They'd claimed that they had been forced to work in a manufacturing industry and they'd not been paid, they'd not been fed, and they were having to steal out-of-date food from bins for food. And they were in a desperate predicament. And it was through their the person who had recruited them for the for the job, uh, who was taking all the money and was treating them so poorly, so initially they get signed up into the national referral mechanism, which is the UK structure for identifying a potential victim and making sure that they're safeguarded and giving uh, food and accommodation and uh, other uh, 
other things that they'll need uh, medical help or help with English language or, or, or whatever somebody needs. The, the care package will be put in place for them through the national referral mechanism. But they didn't want to make statements to police. They didn't want to make official statements to police and they wanted to be repatriated back home. And if somebody wants to be repatriated back home, then that'll that'll always happen. So but it didn't mean that the case was over for us. So we worked with a charity in the, the destination country. So they met them at the airport and were there to safeguard them when they landed. We worked with the, the Gangmasters Licensing Authority and we went and spoke to the um, company that was employing them and they were completely uh uh what's the word they were they they were completely innocent they had no idea that these people were being used and were being exploited and forced into labor they had them they gave them uh, they paid them and they had the right conditions at their work but they just didn't know that their money was then being forcibly taken from them once once they had been paid but because it was brought to their attention they first of all didn't use that recruitment company anymore and then they changed their processes to make sure that it couldn't happen again so when we're talking about transparency in the supply chain and what businesses can do to target harden themselves that's a good example for me of a company that has been made aware of a potential risk and then they've put themselves an action plan and what they've put in place negates a future risk for them so we we found that very positive. The the suspects they disappeared that day, the same day that the victims came forward. They disappeared out of the country and and they flew away again to their home, their home initially home country, and then through the uh, NCA, the National Crime Agency, we liaised with that country, and then shared information with them, and they've started to conduct their own investigation into their behaviour. So. They don't operate here anymore, and we're hoping then to dismantle their criminal business to negate any further victims coming across. So we didn't get a conviction, but we put lots of things, working with partners to safeguard people and safeguard future people, and also hopefully safeguard that business from being involved in future concerns. And another thing I would talk about is when you look at prevention and you're looking at your transparency and supply chain, it's not about you physically having to see the fruit of your labour every time. It's putting things in place which will maybe negate somebody being exploited in the first place or might bring benefit and safeguard somebody and you might never know about it. So one of the things that uh, I'm doing, because I've since I've retired, I've missed being involved in this sphere of work so much. I'm, uh, next month, I'm planning to set up uh, a kick, a community impact company, which is a social enterprise to, as a consultancy to look at human trafficking and supply chain to try and work with businesses and public bodies. As I've uh, never uh, looked at this line of business ever before. So the local council with me have been fantastic. They've given me some people who are advisors and helped me in how you how you set how you set this up. And one of the ladies that has been really helpful to me uh, explained to me the last time I was speaking to her on her phone that her son 
was involved in law enforcement. And three years ago, he remembered that he'd got a talk from myself and he remembered the signs and the indicators. And he'd come across a potential victim at an airport. And because he'd had that training and it gave him the, it gave him that gut feeling that something wasn't wrong. And then he could use the information and the training that he'd been given to go and find out a little bit more. And then he called the local police and this young lady was taken from the airport and was put into the system and was safeguarded from where the, the flight that she was going on to. And I would never, ever have known that. But it didn't matter that I didn't know. That. The fact remains that you done did something that further down the path has hopefully led to somebody else being protected. Yeah, so, it's a ripple effect, isn't it? Yeah. So when we talk about the value of partnership and collaboration, then uh, I was over in The Hague a couple of years ago and I signed uh, a, a legal document with the prosecution service to um, create a JIT, a joint investigation team. So that's when you're working with other countries' law enforcement agencies. So in this case, it was a human trafficking gang that was using and exploiting women in all three countries. So uh, we once we had formed the investigation team, it meant that we could share intelligence, we could share evidence from each other's jurisdictions and each other's court cases, that we could make sure that there weren't parallel investigations and we were identifying which was the best jurisdiction to get the correct suspect for the the best outcome. So then working with Europol and Eurojust and uh, formulating uh, coordinated days of action, we did multiple arrests, multiple searches, uh, and uh, one of our partner countries, they uh, they convicted 13 people. They seized hundreds of thousands of euros, and they're all the largest, uh, their, their main suspect received a prison sentence of seven and a half years. So again, it showed the the level well, it shows that organised crime gangs don't look at jurisdictions. They try to use different country jurisdictions as a way to avoid detection. But it shows that there's the opportunity within law enforcement that you can you can work collaboratively together, and doing that you can get successful outcomes for 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 everyone. And it's part of that partnership where you're speaking to each other, you're agreeing. The, on the crime that you're fighting with, you're agreeing on the criminals that you want to target and you're agreeing with the partnership of what is the goals and how are you going to achieve those goals and, and you're open with each other and you hold each other to account as well, but you're agreeing that you've got a common path and what you want to do and it's not about trying to find just the glory has to be in your patch, it's about where do you get the best bang for your, again, that can, that easily moves into when you look at the preventative work and supply chains that you when you work at different tiers with different companies that are working in different jurisdictions again all it is about is building up that partnership building up that relationship of trust agreeing that you're all going to get outcomes that suits every partner in it mm. and working together for that common goal yeah as easy in business as it is in law enforcement and I'm sure in many ways it's even easier yeah 
Well, thank you very much for your time today, Gavin. It's been fascinating, a really great introduction to some of the landscape in Northern Ireland um, and some of the cases you've worked on and really helped prosecute as well. It's not goodbye, though, because this is just the first in a series of podcasts that we're recording um, with Gavin. Uh, we're really mining him for all his, all his worth because he's got so many fascinating stories to tell. Um, so we will speak to you soon, Gavin. And listeners, you can look out for the second podcast in this series, which will be coming soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Themis Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about Themis, please do contact us via our website at wearethemis.com or drop us an email at info at wearethemis.com. Thank you.